Continuing this morning once again in Amos chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, I will pass through your midst. Now just quickly, as is our habit, to bring us back up to speed for where we're at halfway through chapter 5 this morning, the sin of Jeroboam the first, and then by extension all of Israel after him was not simply a turn towards flirtations with demonic paganism, but instead with a very real agenda, fearing that the worship of the one true God in Jerusalem would somehow lead the heart of Israel back to the house of David and away from the house of Jeroboam, he refashioned God in the manner that he thought he needed him to be. They didn't start off by replacing him with a foreign deity. They took the one they already had and remade him in a manner that was more acceptable, more practical to their perceived need. And having the immutable standard of righteousness removed from the midst of the nation, they quickly fell into the vilest of depravity, indeed madness, believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth that was put clearly before them. And so several centuries later, during the reign of Jeroboam II, Jeroboam I's namesake, and Two years before the earthquake, Amos, a shepherd from Tekoa, just outside of Jerusalem, saw a word. And it is written in Amos 1-2 that the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. For indeed it is written that when the Lord roars, his people will come trembling, but the wicked will harden their hearts. And when they do, a very partial God shows no partiality. He roars forth at all of the nations surrounding Israel, of Syria and Philistia and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab and even at Judah. But at the end of the day, he is particularly speaking to the nation of Israel. For they are a particular people set apart unto him. With much blessing comes much responsibility, for there is an anger that is generated by love that is stronger than any anger that can ever be generated by hate. As the Lord says to his people in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, and therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And indeed he does. The word that Amos saw begins with the Lord saying, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. And as we saw, this is not just simply an insult. It's not just something to get their attention. It's a statement of spiritual reality. Because of out of all the peoples of the earth, he knew them. Therefore, they will meet him, Yahweh the God of hosts, the God of armies, the very God of war. He tells them, prepare to meet your God, not because you don't know me and not because I don't know you, but specifically because I do. And because he does, he speaks a word of lamentation over them. A dirge for the dead, while yet they are still breathing. 
As we saw last week, a very complex song of both anger and sadness that spring forth from the heart of a very complex God. Friends, make no mistake that God is angry with His people. And rightly so. He's angry because the virgin Israel, His virgin, has departed from Him and is breaking His heart. Therefore, in Amos chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, the prophet continues with the word of the Lord and says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of armies and the God of war, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, the God of hosts, the Lord in all the squares, there shall be wailing. And then in the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation and in all the vineyards there shall be wailing for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Therefore, because of everything that you've seen thus far in the entirety of the book of Amos, but particularly beginning in Chapter 5, verse 1. Because of everything that you've heard said and all of the accusation that has been made in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, because of all of those things, therefore now something else, something that springs forth out of this. The definition of therefore is something pertaining to a sequence of events. Referencing that which logically proceeds forth from something else. Things like just also and likewise. And if you said in very many sermons for very many years or very many Sunday school classes, at some point in time you're going to hear some cliched preacher like me say something like, anytime you see the word therefore, you need to look back up the page to see what it's there for. Isn't that precious? The reality is, as cheesy as that is, when it comes to Western thought, that's really a pretty good description. I mean, it really is. It's cliche for a reason. People have said it for a long time, and in this case, they've said it for a long time because that pretty much describes what's going on. But I want you to note that such an understanding when it comes to the Old Testament is nothing less then the Western mind reverse engineering Hebrew thought into its own image. It's really not, I mean, it is a whole lot different. Well, it's not. One's the Word of God and the other's God. It's really not that different from what Jeroboam did. Here's my understanding of what this ought to mean, so that's what it means. If we look at the Hebrew concept of therefore, the same as we look at the Greek concept of therefore, we have missed the mark entirely and reduced something that points to the very heart of God down to mechanics, arithmetic, and the equations of systematic theology. Heaven forbid that we should do such a thing. You're not going to remember the word, but just in case you want to make sure I'm not lying to you, the Hebrew is lakin. And it has 
It is, compared to the Greek concept, it is the deep end of the swimming pool. Because it does not just mean that something proceeds from something else, either as an extension of logic or an extension of just plain reality. But the word literally means erect and upright. Something that stands straight. Something that stands tall. If you wanted to bring it into the English in a way that had some kind of smoothness to the translation, you would probably translate it like this in chapter 5, verse 16. Instead of, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, you would say something like this, rightly well. Rightly well, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares... There shall be wailing. What is being said here is not simply the fact that because you did this, now this is going to happen, but instead that in righteousness, because you did this, this should happen. This isn't just God acting in any old way. It's it's Him acting out of His uprightness. It's Him acting out of His righteousness. Something that these people do not want to hear. And the God who shows incredible favoritism and yet shows no favoritism. A God who is partial and yet shows no partiality. Will now show no favoritism within the nation of Israel. There is no class that is immune. There is no level of education there is, no, there is no economic or political standing that will guard them from what is coming. Therefore, rightly so, thus says the Lord, the God of war, Yahweh, in all the squares there will be wailing. In all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation and in all the vineyards there shall be wailing for I will pass through in your midst says the Lord he will show no favoritism when what he does justly and rightly comes upon them not in the square where important men make speeches not in the street where the merchants sell their goods and people go to and fro not in the pastures of the farmers man being a good old boy you know, we all think, oh, them city dwellers are depraved. Being a good old boy is not going to help them out. He's going to get you out in the hay field. Not in the vineyards of the vine dressers. Everybody knows they're kind of the uppity farmers, right? Not in the vineyards of the vine dressers. Buddy, they're going to call in everybody. The paid mourners. That's, that word skilled means people that are actually professional mourners. From the professional mourners to the farmers to the guys making big speeches in the square to the folks walking down the street to the guys tending the vines. All of you. Alas, alas. And why wouldn't they say so? He's already told them the mortality rate will be 90%. Look back up, just in case you forgot. Amos chapter 5, verse 3. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Now, if he just used one of those, if he just said, 
to the city that had a thousand, there'll be a hundred left, and then moved on. Or if he just said to the city that had a hundred, there'll be ten left, and then moved on. You might be able to make the argument exegetically that he was just trying to draw a contrast about severity. But when you stack two back to back and the math comes out exactly the same, it's because he's making a point about the math. Mortality rate is going to be 90%. Interestingly enough, this is one of the few instances, this is one of the few instances in, in history where the historians and the archaeologists don't really try to argue that the Bible is wrong because the evidence of what happened is just so overwhelmingly graphic. The Assyrian horde is a well-named horde. The mortality rate is going to be 90%. And the reason... You've you got to grasp this truth now. Rightly well, thus says the Lord. Because of verses 1 through 15... Verses 16 and 17 that follow it follow not simply out of cold logic, but instead follow out, a, out of a heart of particular love, doting affection, grief, searing loss, and righteous wrath. And it's right that he feel that way. Rightly so. Because of this, rightly so, thus says the Lord, alas, alas, from the lowliest plowboy to the highest politician. And the question you have to ask yourself is, what could motivate the heart of God to such extremes? Because we typically, and once again, I think all of Amos is like this, generally speaking, this huge warning to not, make, not remake God in the image you want him to be. Not to pick and choose, but to take him as he is. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, what, what would cause, what would motivate the heart of God to such extremes? Because we're, we're fine with motivating the heart of God to extreme action if the, the motivation seems pleasant to us. And so we have no issue of presenting a God that's motivated to extreme action. You know, the death of his self, his own son upon the cross, in order to save you and me if the motivation there is love. But when we see the kind of extreme action out of Amos, we often try to kind of somehow explain away the motivation of, of extreme wrath. And for some reason, I think we're fearful. I think we see God as being so small and so shallow, we just we, we can't quite wrap our mind around the fact that he could actually have both of those in him and not just one or the other. It's like is it, the humans were so limited, we want to go, well, man, if he's this loving, he can't be that angry. Or if he's this angry, he can't be that loving. No, friends, by the time we're done today, what you'll see is he is this angry because he's this loving. That's why. One is producing the other inside the circumstances that are occurring. Got to get your head around this truth. Because of the events of verse, because verse 1 through 15, verses 16 through 17 follow. Not out of cold logic. This is not God sitting on the throne going, well, man, 
I sure don't want to be angry at them, but I've got this set of rules and there's all these things that I have to uphold and they've broke those. And so there has to be a response. There has to be punishment. And, you know, I don't want to do this. Hey, maybe guys come over here. Can the Holy Spirit and Christ come over here? Can we figure out a way so that we don't have to do this? Because I really don't No, That is not what you see. What you see is the Lord roaring forth from Zion. What can motivate God to such extremes? What can motivate him to this kind of anger? And the answer, as we begin to see last week, is because of a broken heart. We dabbled in this, and I cut it short on purpose because it was Family Sunday, and I want to continue where we left off last week, this morning, in Ezekiel chapter 16. In verse 30 through 34, we see the reason. First of all, you're going to see why his heart is so broken. You're going to see why his heart is so broken. He references this when he says, O virgin Israel. He's talking about the nation in a very particular light. And we saw in Ezekiel chapter 16 where he's describing his virgin Israel. And he says, man, nobody loved you. The day you were born, they cast you out in the field to die. They didn't wash you up. They didn't wrap you up. They didn't do anything for you. They didn't love you. He said, I came by. I saw you in your desperate plight in your blood. And I loved you when no one else did. And because I loved you when no one else did, I did everything for you, man. I, as a matter of fact, you were, you were dying to the point that your death was certain. And I looked at you wallowing in your blood and said, live. And my life caused you to live. I mean, this is, this is Gospel of John chapter 1 stuff. In him was life and the life was the light of men. I made you live. And not only did I make you live, but man, I grew you up and I nurtured you and I adorned you and I gave you every beautiful and wonderful thing that the creator of the heavens and the earth could give you. Because I loved you. And when it was time and you were ready for love, I took you to myself. I took the virgin Israel to myself as my wife. And then you departed. And he talks about her infidelity. He continues to speak about it and the fact that his heart is breaking over in Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 30. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God. Because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. Man, she did not just simply have an affair or two. The atrocities that are listed herein go in the column of those who would intend to invent evil. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. And yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. You peddled it for free. Adulterous wife, who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave gifts to your lovers. Okay, not, not only did you do it, for, you didn't actually do it for free, you paid for the privilege to be this sick. You gave 
your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to pay to play the whore, and you gave payment while no pavement was given to you. Therefore, you were different. That's why his heart is broken. Because this one that he had loved and dotted over and cared for and given all of himself to had departed from him in such brazen manner. Therefore, rightly well, there is an anger that flows out of that. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 35, you see what rightly well flows out of it. As a matter of fact, I picked this passage specifically because it uses the same Hebrew word. Therefore, rightly well, lakim. Rightly well, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your whorings and in your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated and will gather them against you on every side. And I will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as a woman who committed adultery and shed blood and shed blood are judged. And bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands. And they shall throw down your vaulted chambers and break down your lofty places. And they shall strip you off your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your house and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women, and I will make you stop playing the whore. And you shall also give payment no more, so I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you, and I will be calm and will no more be angry. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? The Lord said, your heart is sick. What you're doing is breaking my heart. And because you have broken my heart, therefore, rightly well, I am furious in my wrath. And I will do this to you. And the beautiful thing, side note, not today, the beautiful thing about a anger that comes out of love than stronger than one that comes out of the hate, at the end of the day, what it does is it doesn't destroy the prostitute. It makes her not a prostitute anymore. That's the difference. But it's a nasty business in its doing. Because you've done this, he says, it is right for me to feel this way. So too, that if he felt another way that was less than this, it would not be right. Friends, I would submit to you, based off the clear grammar, vocabulary, and context of the text, that if God was indifferent or less angry 
to Israel's sin, it would not be because he was more loving to her. It would be because he was less. Can you imagine, husbands, can you imagine if your wife was doing this every street corner? She set up shop in Little Rock and Dallas and Tulsa and Memphis and Tokyo and New York and just had a brothel everywhere and, um, and, and was paying people to come. Friend, if, if you were indifferent to that, you don't love your wife. You don't love your wife. If you go, huh, well, golly, don't, you know, don't want to come down too hard, don't want to make anybody uncomfortable, don't want to make anybody feel bad. Friends, if you're indifferent to that, you don't love your wife, man. The, the reason he's, he's so angry is because he loves so deeply. Man, there's what he says he's going to do. I'm going to bring all the ones that you fornicated with, and I'm going to bring them together and just wipe you out. Or as he's already said through Amos, a 90% mortality rate. How does it come to pass? He tells us, Amos chapter 5, verse 17. Here's how it comes to pass. For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Guys, he will use the Assyrians against Judah. He will later use the Chaldeans of Babylon. But they are simply the means. It will come at his own hand when the Lord himself is in their midst. I will pass through your midst, he says. Now, if you consider the audience that is receiving this word... <laughs> the precedent is clear. <laughs> because if you say this to a whole bunch of Jews in Israel, well, it's not really fair at this point in history. If you say this to a whole bunch of Israelites in Israel, how about that? If you make this statement that judgment's coming and the way it's coming is I'm going to pass through your midst, there is one Precedent. There is one reference that floats to the top of everybody's mind, just like that, the moment it's said. And it's the last time that the Lord passed through the midst of a people when Israel was present, and it happened immediately before the Exodus in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. In Exodus chapter 11, verse 4, this is, I mean, literally right before the Exodus. I mean, you're on the cusp of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 11, verse 4, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Now, the punishment that came upon Egypt was very specific. It was the death of the firstborn. Very significant in the context of what was going on with this empire. 
But man, what's going to be significant about the Lord coming in judgment into the midst of Israel is not the selection of those who are judged. What's going to be significant is the brutality and breadth of the judgment that comes. 90% mortality rate. He continues in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. He will go through in their midst. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this is the very event that according to what we read, if you keep reading in chapter 12, this is the very event that God says this thing that's going to happen is so monumental that it is going to become the beginning of your calendar. Literally, this event reset all the clocks, reset all the calendars. This is the beginning of days for you. This is the beginning of months for you. From here on out, the Jewish people will reckon time according to this event. So here's what's going to happen. The Lord's going to move through the land of Egypt. He's going to move through the midst of the Egyptians. And he's going to move through in judgment. The judgment's going to be very particular. He's going to kill all the firstborns. But for you, there's something different. For you, there is an intercessor. For you, there is something that stands between the manifest presence of God himself being in your midst and you. There's, some, there's a veil. There's something there that keeps this raw holiness from consuming your sinful nature the way it's going to consume all those that don't have that intercessor standing between me and them. And what is it? It's the blood of the Lamb. It points to the blood of Christ that is on the lentils and the doorposts. As a matter of fact, he speaks of it just like this, just down the page in chapter 12, verse 21 through 23. I love this. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Now, man, you want to weird some slaves out? Go look. Tonight, the world's sole superpower will be brought to its knees. And it will not be done by pestilence and it will not be done by might but the Lord himself a holy God will pass through amongst them and his very holiness will consume all that falls short but you 
the blood will be a sign for you. You take it, man, you kill that Passover lamb, you put it on the lintel, you put it on both of the posts, right there at sundown, and shut the door, and no matter what you hear, don't open it. Now, I don't know what it sounds like, when a superpower's firstborn males are being slaughtered all the night long, I don't know what it sounds like when the fathers are wailing and the mothers are screaming. I don't know what it sounds like as they're dying. But I know this. Moses said, don't open the door, man. There's one thing that stands between you and him. He's going to be in their midst, but there is an intercessor that stands between him and you. You say the Lord is going to be in your midst. Exodus 11 and 12. That's the context that comes to their mind. And now the prophet said this. Thus says the word of the Lord. Rightly well because you've done this. To, to, to the point that if I don't do it, I'm not me. And it would prove that I had no real affection for you. Because of that, I will be in your midst. I won't be in the midst of the Egyptians. There won't be blood to hide behind, I'm going to be in your midst. And when I'm in your midst, 90% are going down. Rightly well. He should, and they know what he means. And so the question then, if you're this people, I think is, well, now what? What do you, I mean, what do you do? I mean, the judgment that we're talking about really here is, is not judgment in the judicial sense. It's judgment in the executional sense. Like, the, the judicial sense of judgment is already done. I mean, he's already made... The, you, the judge is up there and goes, you are guilty. <clears throat> right? So we're not talking about judgment as in though judgment is being passed. This is judgment being executed. So that, that part's done. Like, like any, any point to make an argument that like, look, we're not guilty of this and maybe the sentence ought to be different and, and mitigating circumstances, all that is already over. When he is in their midst for judgment, the judgment is the judgment of execution. It is being carried out. So what now? What do you do now? I mean, the jig is up, man. What are you going to do? Despair? despondency, hopelessness. You know, some people are going to do that. Some people are just going to go get in a funk and go, well, it doesn't matter and there's nothing that can be done. and It's over. Game, set, match. There's other people in a different bend of the flesh that are going to say, take that same truth and go, there's nothing to be done, so by golly, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Might as well get all you can get while the getting's good because the getting ain't about to be at all. I would tell you this, and I want to be honest with you, I do not feel, I do not feel any obligation beyond the text in order to kind of bring it back around to a kind of a hopeful end and put a little bow on it for you. I don't. And if, if that's how he was going to leave it, then, man, we just leave it there and be like, okay, um, what's the point, Pastor? Well, anybody can serve as a bad example, so beware and don't do that, you know. 
But I do feel a tremendous amount of responsibility to the text. And the fact of the matter is, is that there is maybe not as much as I would like and maybe not as much as you would like, but there is some hope in a 90% mortality rate. And you know where it's at? 10%. You know what the hope is in a 90% mortality rate? 10%. You go, man, that's not as much hope as I would like. I ain't got nothing else for you. That's it. Like I said, I don't feel any obligation except to this. So the question is, is do you, do you trust God with the 10%? you trust him with that? Because, man, that 10% is you, and it's your spouse, and it's your kids. That, I mean, they're all like, man... These people, they had lives, they had businesses, they had farms, they had houses, they had families, they had friends, they had schools, they had shops that they owned, and, and they were trying to, I mean, this is real stuff. And so we say 10%, you look around, man, there's going to be a bunch of people. Do you trust God with that? Do you trust God with that being sufficient hope in the midst of judgment that is deserved and that you could make an easy argument should just be 100%? But you read Amos chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. And you know, even with 10%, you know, it, it, like there's some tendency towards despondency, I think. Because you read verses 8 and 9, and he's right in the middle of this like rant about what he's going to do to them out of the anger of his love. And he says, He who made the Pallades and Orion, he's talking about the stars in the heavens, and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortresses. So this one right here, you're like, man, if he says, okay, rightly well that I come into your midst and judge you in this way so that the mortality rate's 90%, and just so you understand, I'm the one who put Orion up there for you. Now, I, 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 well, I got well past my flaky college, aren't I a deep thinker, thing decades ago and I still like to go outside at night and look at Orion hanging in the sky what do you do with that well you guys have built some stuff Uh, you know you got your couple of calves up here Dan's a nice place aquifers a couple of palaces y'all got some nice stuff he did that and man he's angry And his anger is not intellectual. Man, this is, this is not the police officer standing at your window with the pad going, well, you know, you're doing 62 and a 55, and that's this, and here's the code number, and make sure you show up for quarter pay the ticket. You know, I mean, he, at the end of the day, he really, you know, he's not that upset with you. Now, he may have, you know, kind of an intellectual idea of that, you know, we need to have speed limits so people are safe. And, you know, he'd be legitimately angry if you're doing 30 miles an hour over in a school zone at 8.05 in the morning. But, you know, you're out in the middle of nowhere. Man, you just get the ticket, right? Okay, that's not what he's doing, man. He is furious. And he did that. So what do you do? I mean, really, isn't this kind of a moot point? He's just going to do it. And that's going to be that. And ten will walk in and one will walk out. What's the answer? Is there anything that can be done? Rightly well. 
therefore. There exist in rightly well both the right action of God, the right response of God to them breaking his heart, and there exists rightly well the right response of the people that broke it in relating to him. So in verse 16 and 17, you get the rightly well, I should this is what is just and upright for me to do. But just up the page in verse 12 through 13, you get the rightly well what is just and upright for men to do, considering the circumstance of their guilt, God's broken heart, his anger, and ensuing judgment. And here it is in verse 12. Actually, yeah, let's go to 12, 12 through 13. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, rightly well, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Okay, first things first. What, if if it is rightly well that God should do this because of what they've done, considering that circumstance, and if you find yourself here being the one that he's talking to about being the guy that hung the stars in the night, what is it rightly well you should do? Because the flesh in me says, you know, uh, run, right? Of course, the problem is, is if you listened and and read the first portion of Amos, what you're going to find out is that all of these different, if you look on the map, all these different nations that he talked to are those that completely surround Israel, and it's all coming on them too. There is nowhere to run to. They're caught in a noose. What is right What is the correct response? What is the upright thing for a man in his guilt, for a God who is justly angry and going to bring wrath, what is it that he should rightly do? Okay, here's the first thing. It's not talking. (laughs) He says, in this day right here, therefore, rightly well, he is prudent, will keep silent in such a time. For it's an evil time. You're not going to talk your way out of this one. You're not going to talk your way out of this one. Man, <laughs> you know, you but it's so funny now because I remember when I was a kid, I'm like, how do these adults always know what I'm thinking? I had such a good argument, you know, and now they, you bust them and they're just like, you can see it on their faces, man. They start to run it and you're like, dude, I know the truth. And like the more they try to talk themselves out of it, the angrier you get. Because you're not going to take the woman that did all these things. You're not going to take the virgin Israel, this nation that did these things that he described, and then have him go, oh, you're right, I was mistaken. That's not how this is going down. Don't try to talk your way out of it or use any of the other cheap box checking associated with systematic worship as though that is going to please a holy God. In other words, as he's already said, don't try to do it at Bethel and don't try to do it at Gilgal. Chapter 5, verse 4 through 5. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but don't seek me at Bethel. 
and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall surely come to nothing. The way you are trying, don't go there to try to worship me. Don't try to do their things. Don't try to do their stuff. Don't try to start dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's, because doing the things that you were doing at those places is what got you into this mess to begin with. Why does he not want him to go up there? There was a time we looked when we did this a couple of weeks ago, man, where Gilgal and Bethel were places of legitimate worship to God. Why? What happened? Was verses 4 through 5 of chapter 4. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifice every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving for that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. He is done with any kind of systematic, standard-pleasing, box-checking religion. Just shut up, he says. Done. First thing, be quiet. So what do you not do? Don't talk. Guys, this is an offense of the heart. So too must be the reckoning. Going down there and killing the right number of calves in the right way, sprinkling the blood at the proper moment in the proper place, that, that stuff... That, that shadow and copy stuff is not going to get it done. It was an offense of the heart. The retribution must be a retribution of the heart. So that's what you don't do. Okay? What do you do? Amos chapter 5 verse 14. Therefore, rightly well, in verse 13, who is prudent will keep silent at such time for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. So here's what you're supposed to do. Seek good and not evil. You say, now wait just a minute. Just a second ago, you said, you know, don't do the talking. Don't do the religious, you know, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, box checking. Don't don't do all the systematic stuff because this is an offense of the heart. But now you're telling me that there is some stuff I should do. And what I should do is I should seek to do the good and not to do evil. Well, isn't that just the same thing, but with a different set of parameters? And the answer is no, and here's why. Because in verse 14, he tells us why you seek good and not evil. That is because you hate evil and love good. An offense of the heart must have a reckoning of the heart. The problem with Israel is not that they do these things. He pointed it out back there in chapter 4. The problem is they love to do them. And if they didn't love to do them, guess what? They wouldn't be doing them. I mean, this is an easy equation. This doesn't take a great detective to figure out. I mean, if you got God going, hey, don't do this stuff because I'm going to destroy you if you do, and you look at it and go, well, that's good because I hate doing that stuff anyway. Win-win. <laughs> right? Don't have to go do what I hate and don't have to die for doing it. Sweet. An offense of the heart requires a reckoning of the heart. Okay, I'm almost done. But we got it, we gotta finish with this. What is it rightly well for a man to do when the mortality rate's gonna be ninety percent? It's gonna be, because he doesn't say the mortality rate be ninety percent unless you do this. It's just going to be 
but yet here is the right thing for you to do. But you may find to have eternal effect on the other side of the 90% mortality rate. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Isn't that an interesting turn of the phrase? It may be. If you, if you'll, here, here's what you rightly ought to do. First of all, stop talking and stop doing all of this just empty speech and, and activity that you're doing and start doing the stuff that God really loves because you're doing it out of a heart that hates the things he hates and loves the things he loves. That you might live for it may be not as many absolutes here as we would like, (laughs) that you might live, that it may be that the Lord will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now, I want you to notice, because this kind of gets lost in translation a little bit, this is may be, the translation is two words, not maybe, one word. So it's maybe, it may be, it's not, maybe the Lord will be with you, no, it may be that the Lord will be gracious to the remnant of the house of Joseph. There's a little loss in translation here. I think when we think of this concept, you know, we think of, of an if statement, of a possibility, of um, you know, perhaps uh, an uncertainty. And that certainly seems to fly in the face of New Testament proof texts, doesn't it? bothers people. You start looking at stuff like this and say, well, here's what the Lord says, man. If you'll do, if you'll if you keep your mouth shut and you'll stop doing this stuff and you'll start doing this stuff because you feel this way, then maybe, maybe I'll be gracious to you. That doesn't really go with with kind of an isolated gospel that we that we like to preach. And so, and it, and it flies in the face of a lot of proof text. One would be, for instance, Luke chapter 10, verse 9 through 10. I want you to just kind of follow along Instead of the the might and maybe, you get all these absolute statements out of Jesus here. And so he says, um, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Absolute. Not ask and maybe I'll give it to you, but ask and and, and it will be given to you. Absolute. Seek and you will find. Absolute. Number two. Knock and it will be opened for you. Absolute. Number three. For everyone who asks receives. Absolute. And the one who seeks finds. Absolute. And the one who knocks it will be opened to them. Absolute. Number six. And let me tell you something, guys. They call them proof texts for a reason. It's because they prove something. And what Jesus is saying is absolute, and it's absolutely true. They're called proof texts because they bring proof unless we extract them and reinterpret them outside of the context of Scripture, but instead out of what we wish they meant. And I would tell you, that just as it's not, well, if he's this loving, he can't be this angry, or if he's this angry, he can't be this loving, but he's both, so too I would tell you that the right well response of God to the right well response of men is both he may be good to you and he absolutely will be good to you. And I'm not talking out both sides of my mouth. It may be that the Lord, the God of war, 
will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now, isn't it interesting that he says the remnant of Joseph and not the remnant of Jacob? Another day. Another day. I just graduated. There is, once again, a depth to the Hebrew that doesn't come across in either the English or even in the Greek. This word, while it certainly does have a certain sense of perhaps that goes along with it, that perhaps is not couched in uncertainty. As a matter of fact... um, once again, I just say this so if you want to look it up, you can. Brown Driver Briggs, which is considered one of the foremost lexicons for real Hebrew study, says that the sense of this word more than anything else is one of, check this out, pre-adventure. That there's this idea that there is not when you, when we say perhaps it, it's like we're hoping for something that's likely not. Whereas this is couched in not so much negative uncertainty, but a hopeful uncertainty. The kind where you look around and go, man, according to what we've seen here, everything is bad. But it may be that he'll be good. Pre-adventure. The place that I think that you see it demonstrated the best where you can kind of grasp this, because I've struggled around with it for a while. I think the place you can see this where you can kind of grasp the the feeling, like because the English just doesn't do a good job. And and, and that's not me saying that. I mean, when you start reading the Greek scholars on this, and they're like, man, this is a tough idea to to get across in, in the English. And I think you almost have to kind of feel it. It's kind of that taste and see that God is good kind of a thing. You almost have to kind of feel it in the context of what's going on. And I think there's no better place to see it than where we saw it at camp in Joshua chapter 14. And so if you look in Joshua chapter 14, if you're at camp, if you're familiar with the Joshua narrative, you guys, you guys know how this is going. You know, Moses dies, Joshua gets installed as, as no longer as Moses' right-hand man, but he's the leader of the people of Israel, and he leads them into the promised land. He re- leads them across the Jordan at flood stage. He leads them to conquer Jericho. They get their nose bloodied at eye and comes back and corrects his error, repents, and, and they get it right, and they move systematically through the country, taking over, you know, one city after the other, and Forty years later, when they're getting old, Caleb is 85 at this point, and they've kind of got the the strategic situation locked down. Still a lot of tactical stuff to clean up, but the big picture, they've got a hold on this place. And Caleb remembers what the Lord promised him through Moses. And it's one of the greatest dialogues in all of Scripture. I just love it. And I think here we can kind of get our hands 
on what is being said in Amos chapter 5. In Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. See, used to go well there. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord... Notice he doesn't call him Elohim here. This is all capital letters. My third and fourth graders can tell you. You know what Yahweh said to Moses, the man of God, and Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. Because they were the only ones that believed that God was faithful of the twelve. All the rest of them, shaky knees, weak hearts. Not these two. You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. In his heart. Not, not, not a, you know, I did all the stuff. I, I spied out. Here's the GPS coordinates of the places we went, and I checked all of their fortifications. Here, how high the walls are. Here, here, and here's the analysis. And man, I just don't think we can do it. That's what everybody else is saying. Everybody else is saying those people are giants. We're like grasshoppers. Yes, the land's awesome, but we cannot do it. It doesn't fit the math, right? Caleb came back and said, I told him what was in my heart. Man, an offense of the heart is only going to be corrected by a reckoning of the heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, and yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and for your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old, and I'm as still, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now, as is my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. Now, guys, there's some pretty, there's some pretty mean dudes when they're 40 years old. They don't all go the, go the way I did. There's some pretty hard dudes when they're 40. There aren't any hard 85-year-olds. Not that are as hard at 85 as they were 45 years before. And Caleb says, look, take a look at me. Let me at them. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim, the giants, were there with great and fortified cities. Okay, here's the scenario. Caleb says, look, everybody else told them what was in their head made the heart of the people melt. We told them what was in our heart, a heart that was faithful to God because we understand God's faithfulness to us. And because of that, even though the rest melted and we had to wander around where people were dropping like flies for 40 years out in the wilderness, because of that, the word of the Lord came through Moses, the man of God, to me and said, you will surely have this land. He said, now you know we didn't go spy that out. Some of the other spies did. He said, you know what they said. The Anakim are there, giants with huge fortified cities. Now I'm 85 years old. Does this sound to you like a man who is worried about giants in fortified cities? 
He says, man, I mean, this is spitting your eye type stuff. He says, I'm 85 years old. I'm strong today for going and coming and going to war. The Lord has been faithful to me. Look at me. Imagine a guy, when you're out there in the wilderness and all of these people are just dropping like flies, man. Their bodies are deteriorating. They're aging. They're just coming unwound. Here's Caleb. He gets older and older and older. His muscle tone doesn't change. Maybe he gets a little gray in his beard. And he says, man, what I'm going to do is go have Adam. Just give me leave. Now, here's your maybe. Verse 12 so now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be. It's the exact same word. It's the exact same concept. Pre-adventure. Uncertainty. But not uncertainty based in hopelessness. Uncertainty based in hopefulness. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord has said. So here's get a hold of that, man. He's not sitting there going, well, man, they've got all these huge cities down there and you know it's where the giants are, but by golly, we've given it the good old college try thus far and you know, I mean, hey, listen, you know, once more into the breach, right? So maybe, maybe he'll be good to me and we'll go and drive them out. That's not what he's saying. That, that's not the tone of this speech. <laughs> Man, this is a guy with steel in his eyes. He says, you know what God said to me. You know he's kept me like this to this day. I'm just as strong now as I was then. Who's ever even heard of that? Now give me leave. For it may be that the Lord will be with me. And we will drive them out as he said we would. That's the pre-adventure that's being spoken of. And you know what follows it? blessing chapter 14 verse 13 then Joshua blessed him and he gave him Hebron he gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance you can read the rest in your own time he says man you know what the Lord promised me what was in our heart was what was in his heart because he put it in our heart. He has kept me like this to this day. We've done the job that we were supposed to do. Now give me leave that maybe he'll be with me. And we will drive him out. And Joshua looks him up and down and goes, you know what the blessing is? Have Adam. Oh, and by the way, he gave him Hebron. Because it belonged to the giant that was the greatest among them. And it's still called that to this day. What we see in Amos is not an equation to be solved or a charge to be balanced. What we see is the heart of God reacting out of anger because of the love of God and reacting rightly well considering what has been done. And we also see a people who have a standard given to them by God by which they may react rightly well. And in the midst of a 
mortality rate, there is real expectational hope that the Lord will respond to the people that relate, re, relate to Him rightly well as He has said. This is a deal. This is the heart. I wish I could say it the way Freeman says it. It has more impact when he says heart than when I say it. Man, this is of the heart. This isn't of the head. It's not of checked boxes. This is the virgin being reconciled to her bridegroom. Talk is cheap. Thinly veiled activity is thinly veiled. But a heart that hates the things that God hates and loves the thing that God loves finds itself in a position where it may legitimately say, let's hate these things and love these things. Let's seek good and not evil, for it may be that he will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So what do you do with this in the context of the modern church? Well, let me tell you guys, if you're concerned about a guarantee, so we go back to Luke, right? And I mean, you guys know how it is. We believe Luke just as much as we believe Amos. It's not one or the other. It's both and. Lots of absolutes. Hopefully today we've seen how the absolutes and the hopefulness and the maybe work together. But I'll just say this. If you, you know, if you got your tail in a bunch and are concerned about a guarantee because what you're concerned about is speaking to the faithful character of God, like, hey, man, listen, he says if you, you, know, if you seek, you will find. And, and, and the reason that you want to like, kind of drive that guarantee home is because you want to talk about the faithfulness of his character, then let me tell you something. You've got a guarantee. You've got one. It's in Luke. But if you want a guarantee on the front end, so that you can assuage your fears, hedge your bet, or have a spiritual prenuptial agreement that obligates him in spite of yourself, you can forget it. This isn't business. This is the heart. Man, when you, you see these, these celebrities and stuff on TV, you know, these big high-powered businessmen, and they're getting a divorce and you know, well, they had a prenuptial agreement, so it ought to be a pretty standard affair, or, you know, or, or, or on the front end. So-and-so got married today for the, you know, the seventh time, but he's got a prenuptial agreement. Man. Guys, that, that is, and we all know it, like, like you hear that and you instantly know it. And there's reasons that a lot of proposals went south when a prenuptial agreement got brought up, and rightfully so. It's because we know what. Scripture describes the bridegroom and the bride-to-be. This isn't business. This is an affair of the heart. So what we can do is we can defend the character of God and we can come in and we can say, look, man, if God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And, if he, and Jesus says, if you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door's going to be open. You can say that all day long. We can defend God's character. We say there can be hope in those things. But if in the midst of the judgment for sin, if we think for a moment that it would be appropriate 
to come to the very people that are in the condition of that sin and say, listen, if you'll just do X, Y, and Z, then he is obligated out of his character to respond to you. Friends, it has been said, and I think Scripture upholds it as a general rule, those that come demanding grace have not yet found themselves in a position to receive it. You don't get to come to God and say, you have to be gracious to me. That's not how it works. If I do this, 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 and this, you have to be gracious to me. Friends, that's not the salvation that's in this book. The salvation that's in this book is men and women that come and fall on their knees. Little boys and little girls that fall on their knees, that see their sin for just as ugly as he says it is, and then go, oh, now I get why you're so angry. And then throw yourself at his mercy, knowing you deserve nothing, but in the depth of your heart, have that swelling up that comes from the Holy Spirit that says, but it may be. It may be that he'll be gracious to me. For I've heard of his name. I've heard of his renown. And I've heard of his character. And then the joy of realizing that what you heard was correct. Rightly well. It may be that he will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I pray that he's gracious to you, man. You can't tell you, don't you come and say, the preacher said, my Sunday school teacher said, if I do this, you have to, no, no, you come and you humble yourself. And in hopefulness, wait to see him display his character. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Golly, how could we not? How could we not? Lord, we love you. We praise you. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you love us even when that brings your anger upon us. We thank you that you were so angry that you were willing to put it on the only one who could deal with your anger, and that was yourself, Lord. We pray that you would draw men to you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.